0: Bibles this morning to Job chapter 1 and we're going to read the whole chapter together and Job if you go to Psalms in the middle of your Bible the Psalms it's the first book to the left after of Psalms. Got it? So it goes Job, Psalms, Psalms right in the middle and first book to the left is Job and we'll be looking at chapter 1 as we wonder why bad things happen to good people Job chapter 1 in the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job this man was blameless and upright he feared God and shunned evil he had seven sons and three daughters and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them when a period of feasting had run its course job would send and have them purified early in the morning he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them thinking perhaps my children have sinned and cursed god in their hearts this was job's regular custom one day the angels came to present themselves before the lord and satan uh, before the lord and satan also came with them the lord said to satan where have you come from satan answered the lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it then the lord said to satan have you considered my servant job there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? Have You, blessed, you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has... And he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine... At their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up tore his robes, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing why don't we come and pray together church this morning God we want to thank you for uh, the hope of the resurrection and the good news that Lord Jesus you have come and died on the cross and you have risen from the dead And God, as we put our faith and trust in your Son, Jesus Christ, we thank you that there is forgiveness, there is hope for life after death, eternal life with you. And God, there is your Holy Spirit, your presence to guide us and empower us each day. And God, we thank you for the joy that comes from knowing you. And yet this morning, God, we know that life uh, with you And life on this earth is not always everything going right. God, often many of us have found ourselves in the midst of the bleakest circumstances. God, many of us have faced the most challenging, hurtful situations. God, many of us have gone through the deepest grief. And in those times, our heart cries out to you and says, God, why? And Lord, as we come this morning and as we open Your Word, God, we thank You that You are a, a sovereign God, that You are in control, that You are all-powerful God, that there's nothing that You cannot do, and that You're always present. And whatever we're facing, that You're right in the midst of it with us. And God, as Gail speaks in a few moments, we pray that You would speak to us, Lord, and that You would help us to understand. Uh, where you are in the midst of the hurt and the pain. God, thank you that you're here this morning. We just want to pause to just tell you that we love you. And we're thankful for all that you have done for us and that you're doing in us, even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that we face. So God, as we praise you now, we give you thanks that you're our God, whatever we're facing in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Thanks, Wendy. And uh, just thank you for those beautiful songs. They're just so perfect for what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we've already heard from Jonathan uh, the scriptures that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, but I, I want to start by sharing um, some of my um, thoughts on, um, on the whole experience of, of why bad things happen to good people. Now, on Thursday, I, I've got permission from this lady, actually, I asked her permission, but I went to visit Bev Beach. I don't know if any of you know Bev. Um, But Bev has been worshipping here in this church for 15 years and uh, about three or four years ago, Bev um, developed uh, multiple sclerosis, MS. And we've really noticed that over the last few years in particular, physically, she has just deteriorated. Um, Bev, in the last year, has moved out of her family home and she's now living in a nursing home. And she's only in her 40s. Uh, so Bev has gone from a healthy, vibrant mum and wife to someone that's now finding it very hard physically to, to really um, function. And she's also gone from uh, living in a home to living in one room and sharing a a larger home with 50 or so other people. She's moved from the hostel part, which is more independent up to the more dependent unit where she needs full-time care. Uh, She's on her own and I guess I was with her on Thursday and I knew I was preparing for the sermon today and, and through my mind, the question was was racing. Why does bad things happen to a good person like Bev? Last year, a group of us, as you know, went to Africa, to Kenya, and we met some amazing, amazing, God-fearing Christian people there. And while we were there, we were just so humbled and impacted by the faithfulness of these people and and what they were trying to do whilst they lived in and amongst the most abject poverty that you could ever imagine. I've never ever in my life seen such miserableness and such abject poverty as I did last year. And We'd even thought we'd go back. We were we're just so encouraged by these people. But at Christmas time, I don't know if you read in the newspaper, but there was an election and and the opposing party thought that it was rigged. And so what has happened now, there's been this huge crack of warring divide in Kenya, which was once known as the hope of Africa, um, and, and now it's bordering on civil war, uh, which just tears at our heartstrings. And, and you think, why? Why does something bad happen to people like you and I that are so good? Even my own sister, three years younger than me, 15 years ago, her husband died at 37 of cancer Uh, From the time he was diagnosed to the time he died was nine months. And my sister really has not had a very happy life since. And and two years ago, she remarried a man. And she thought she'd married someone wonderful. And four months into the marriage, she realised that he was actually having an affair with a woman that he still had a relationship with prior to their wedding. My sister is a good person. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I don't know if you're like me, but I'm sure if I was to ask you, I'm sure you could think in your life about perhaps your own personal life or your family or the people around you, let alone the world that we live in, and ask the same question. Why, God? Why, why do bad things happen to good people? Good people. And this is what we want to come and have a look at today. And and the book of Job is a book that was written some say it's the oldest, one of the oldest books in the Bible. No one knows the author. Some people say that the author might have been Moses because what Jonathan read to us from the book of Job chronicles a time predating when the Ten Commandments were given, predating the time of the um, institution of the priesthood where... The Levites, through Aaron and his descendants, were given the role of atoning for the Israelites. Here we see a man, Job, personally the patriarch of his family, atoning for the sins of his own children so So the uh, theory is that Job was set in a time predating um, Moses, the time of perhaps Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And and some say that the book of Job is really a book about trying to understand this very question of suffering. Why do good people like Job, a righteous man like Job, why did he suffer? Why did God allow what he allowed in his life? Well, before we try and wrestle with this question, I just want us to to really think about why suffering may occur in the first place. Why do bad things happen to good people? Where, Where might suffering originate from? And I've thought of four areas where suffering might originate from. And the first is our own sinfulness. And the Bible's pretty clear on this. You know, in the very beginning, it says in Genesis one, God created the heavens and the earth. So right from the start, we've got in the very first chapter, in the very first book of the Bible, we get an image already that there is a God, that he's an amazing, all-powerful, almighty and good God because he created the heavens and he created the earth. It was him. It was no one else. So we know that predating what we come to know as the fall, the earth was good. The earth was perfect. Perfect. And in Genesis 1.27, it says, God created man in his own image. So you and I are actually a replication of God. If we know that God is good and God, and God is um, all-powerful, we know that God intended for us to be the same. Something got just, it's just gone off, guys. We'll move on. But God also says in Genesis that He created man and woman in His own image and then He blessed them. So God wanted us to be blessed. He wanted us to be blessed. But then something terrible happens. Just a few chapters on, in chapter 3, we're told that man rebelled, that man sinned. And it was the serpent in chapter 3, the devil, that tricked God, that, that almost um, manipulated man into thinking that he could be like God and as a result, man and women woman were cursed. So we see in the very first book of the Bible that there is sin and the sin originates from the very first original sin in the Garden of Eden. And as a result, we are cursed. And as a result, we have consequences to our ongoing sin in our life. And suffering is a result of that. For example, if I willingly choose to do something that is wrong and I willingly sin, I might tell a lie, or I might not look after my body as I should then there'll be consequences. And usually those consequences will result in suffering and in pain. So we can, sin from, uh, we can have suffering from our own sinfulness. But the Bible also is clear that we can actually suffer as a result of goodness. In 1 Peter 3.13 it says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. So the inference here is that we will suffer even for doing what is right. We will suffer. I can remember when I became a Christian some 20 odd years ago now and I was the first person in my family to become a Christian. And I can remember the... Um, comments and the reaction from my family and quite honestly I felt I suffered I felt that they didn't understand and I felt marginalized and I felt that for a long time and I think we will suffer for doing what's right in this world and I think we will suffer for doing good but God says that even in that we will be blessed in in John 9 there was a blind man and the disciples said to Jesus, what sin did he commit? And Jesus said he didn't commit any sin. His blindness was not a result of his sinfulness, but so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So sometimes we suffer through God's hand in Exodus 4, 11, when Moses was called to go out and to proclaim to the Israelites that they would be released and made free, Moses pleaded with God and said, God, I can't speak. I don't have a good enough voice. And the Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? God said to him, who makes him deaf or dumb? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. So sometimes it can seem as if even God causes us to suffer, causes us to be blind or dumb. But suffering can also occur by the devil. When Paul went, it was said to the third heaven and he saw the most amazing things and to keep him from being conceited, the Bible says that he was given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. So suffering can occur from the devil as well. And in Ephesians 6, it's very clear. It says, for our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with the powers, with the principalities of evil and darkness in the heavenly realms. So suffering does occur, and it can occur for four reasons. And it's a problem for us, as it was for Job, for three reasons. The first is that we don't like to suffer. None of us want to suffer, do we? None of us want to feel pain. None of us want to feel uncomfortableness. I know I don't. So suffering is a problem for that reason. But there's another reason that suffering is a problem. And that can be because sometimes suffering seems senseless. I'll give you an example. Suppose you all go to church tonight and at the end of the service you walk out of the church and you walk into a darkened uh, parking lot and a man wearing a mask comes up to you with a knife, approaches you, stabs you in the stomach, robs you and you remain unconscious and wake up eventually in acute pain. That would be suffering, wouldn't it? And fairly senseless. But suppose you go to church tonight, you walk out, you go into your car and you drive to the hospital and there you meet a man with a mask and he makes you unconscious and he, he steals your money but he actually, he actually takes a knife and he stabs you in the stomach and you wake up and you're in pain, but in actual fact, it's actually good pain. Do you see the difference? That that psychologists tell us that suffering without any purpose, without any meaning, without any goal is often senseless. And and, and it, it means that we often feel like we cannot overcome. But suffering where there's a purpose, even if we have to endure for a while, somehow gives us the, 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 the courage and the internal strength to go through it because we know that the end justifies the means. So suffering is a problem when we experience it, when it's senseless. But lastly, it's a problem for us Christians if we believe that our God is a good God, is a powerful God who rules the world and can and perhaps should intervene in our suffering. So the question that we ask ourselves is, God, are you really good and all-powerful? And if so, why won't you intervene in our suffering? And when we look at Job, we really start to see some insights. You know, it starts off with a man who is blessed, a man that had seven sons and daughters and herds, thousands and thousands of of herds and servants. And in fact, the Bible tells us that he was probably one of the most wealthiest men around. And in Hebrew culture of that day, there was an understanding that if you were a righteous person, if you followed God, then it followed that you would be blessed in Deuteronomy 28. There's a whole chapter based on the blessings and the curses of God and the blessings of God relate to your righteousness, your faithfulness in God. And there's an inference that if you are faithful, if you are righteous, that that not only will God bless you in spirit, but that he'll bless you materially as well. And so here's Job, a man that is blessed so abundantly and in walks the devil. And the devil, we see, has an amazing conversation with God and set up in, in verse 6 where we see that the devil says that he's been roaming, he tells God he's been roaming the earth, going backwards and forward. And God, like a proud father, says, have you seen my servant, my son Job? Isn't he fantastic? Isn't he one of the most righteous men in all the earth? And you can just get this image of God being just like a proud dad of his son Job. The devil's response is very, very, uh, is very cunning, but I think strikes at the heart of God Because basically the devil says to God, it's easy for a man like Job to to love you and worship you and be righteous and holy because look what you've given to him. You've given him all these herds. You've given him all these children. You've blessed him. You've made him wealthy. And so what we see in the first chapter is a wager that develops between God and the devil Because what the devil actually wages with God is take away the very props that Job has, the very blessings in his life, the material wealth. And the question is, will he still bless you, God? Will he still love you? Will he still call you his Lord And, you know, it's an age-old dilemma for God. It is an age-old dilemma. It has been the taunt of countless people down through the ages. God, do you trust your creation enough to love them even when it seems like you're their enemy? The other question might be, do we, do we trust God enough even when life isn't going as it should? Do we trust that God is good? Do we trust that God is powerful in difficult circumstances? And, you know, when I look at this first chapter I get a real glimpse into the heart of God. I get a real glimpse into the wrestling and the agony that God himself has. It's here that God is saying, I love my creation so much but, and I love them unconditionally. You only have to look at the fact that we see a sunrise every morning That when we turn on our taps, we get water. That we are fed every day. That we understand what love is through the love of family and others. So God loves us unconditionally. There is no doubt about that. But here we see God's heart. Does my creation love me unconditionally? Do they? Or do they only love me because of what I do for them, not because of who I am? I think this is the question more so than why do bad things happen to good people? And so here we see Satan trying to undermine And stab at God's heart and using the pawn of Job in the the process. And the question is, has God found a servant in Job that would love him unconditionally? You know, going back to Bev, and I have her permission, I was astounded on Thursday when she's sitting in her wheelchair, she needs assistance for all the daily activities of life. And she started a small group in her room and she was telling me about the study she's doing. It's the Philip Yancey study is what's so amazing about grace. And she was waxing lyrically about the grace of God in her life. And you know what she said to me? She said, Gail, I am so blessed. I am so blessed. God just blesses me so much. And I stood there in awe. I literally did. I stood there and marvelled that a woman that had so little and so much had happened to her, so much had been taken away from her, could tell me that she was blessed could minister to me in my comfortableness, in my pettiness at times and say, God is so good to me. Is God going to find that in his servant Job? Is Job going to love him unconditionally? Because you see, the secret is that when things are stripped away, it's a paradox. Instead of becoming bound, we actually become free. You see, I look at Bev and I've never met a more freer person. I can honestly say that in my life. Everything has been stripped away and she is all that is left is her and God. And she's free. How many of us? Could say that we are truly free or are we so bound up in our work, in earning money, in, in making sure we've got enough for our superannuation, in providing for our children, in the hassle of life. I know, I know there are hassles in life. I know there is suffering in life. I know it personally and I know it because I know some of your stories, and I don't want to minimise your story. I don't want to minimise your suffering. Bad things do happen to good people, absolutely. But the question, the question we have to ask ourselves is not why. I don't think, I don't think Job, the book of Job, even fully answers that question. But I do believe a better question is to ask, how? How? How am I going to be in this suffering? How am I going to get through? What, what things do I need to do? That is the key to understanding this arm wrestling match between God and Job. And, you know, in this chapter, we see what happened. Job's life was totally devastated. First, he lost his wealth to marauding bandits. Gone are his oxen needed for farming. Gone are his donkeys and camels needed for transport. All his workers are massacred. His financial empire lies in ruin. And then, to make it worse, God... God created suffering. It says fire from heaven, fire from God came down, consumed his servants and then a wind which came from God blew the house in and all his children were killed. God is really testing this servant. God is really saying, Job, how much will you love me? if the conditions aren't there. Well, what is the answer to the question, why do good people suffer? Or if there is a God, is he really good and all-powerful? And why won't he intervene in our suffering? Well, I think from the first chapter in the first book of Job, we see that yes, there is a God and he is intimately involved in the interest of our life. You see, we don't realise, but while we live our earthly life here, there's another world that's happening and that world is happening in the spiritual realm and we see that, we see that in this chapter and it's a wrestle for our very souls between God And Satan. And it's a wrestle for the freedom of our souls. It's a wrestle for us to say, yet though he smite me, yet I will still believe. And so yes, emphatically, there is a God. And we can see from the chapters of creation, we can see from his own handiwork how he created us, in his own image, that yes, he is a good God and he intended for our lives to be good, for them to be without suffering, without pain. Yes, he is a good God. And we can see even from that first chapter in Genesis that he is all-powerful. He created everything. So yes, emphatically, there is a God, He really is good and he is all-powerful. And so, Lord, why won't you intervene in our suffering, in our pain? Well, you know what? I think God has and I think he still is every day. May not be in the way we want him to, but I firmly believe That God does intervene and that He is good. You know, um, God knows how many raindrops are going to fall on this world in this year. My God knows how many leaves there are on all the trees of the forest. My God loves me so much that the very hairs on my head are numbered. You know, God did intervene and answer this question. And one of why bad things happen to good people and why won't he intervene? And he answered definitively one, through Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So the question of our suffering was handed over to Jesus and he became sin. He suffered in our place. In 1 Peter 2, 24, it says, He himself bore our sins on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, not by ours, by his we are healed. God is not remote. He was not only willing to get his hands dirty, he was willing to get them pierced for us. Dorothy L. Sayers in her play, The Man Born to be King, says, For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. He had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and has played fair. He has himself gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and lack of money to the worst horrors, pain and humiliation and defeat and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace, and he felt it was all worthwhile. Why? Because you and I are worthwhile, because God is good Because he is all-powerful. He did not want to leave you to suffer senselessly. He wanted a purpose for your suffering. He wanted you to overcome. And he did that through giving us Jesus, through giving us his spirit to enable us to withstand, to enable us to withhold. You know, in Romans... 5, verse 3, it says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. God has intervened through Jesus Christ and he doesn't exempt us from suffering just as he didn't exempt Job. But he says with Jesus now, there is always a purpose for our suffering. And that is to align ourselves with Christ. That is to enter into his suffering. That is to call on his spirit to sustain us, to help us persevere. Because we always have a hope. Even if it seems senseless, we always have a hope. And I want to say to you here today that there is always a hope for you. Your suffering may never be removed But you may be able to, you can, like Bev, transcend your suffering only through Jesus Christ. There is no other. He can and he will. And in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16... He has intervened through his incredible empowerment, through his incredible grace. It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise. And the word sympathise literally means suffer with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin." Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. And and this is even in our suffering. Let us approach, let us go with our suffering where we're meant to go, to the throne of grace, where we will receive mercy and find help in our time of need. What did Job do? What did Job do? Well, I think he did the best thing he could possibly do. It says in verse 20, at this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. That is symbolic of deep grief, an expression, an outward expression of an internal anguish, an internal mourning. And God does not expect us to be superheroes. God expects us to rant and to rail and to mourn and to weep and to say it's not fair. Bad things happen to good people, Lord, and it's not fair. But God doesn't expect us to just leave it there. Do that by all means, but don't leave it there. You see, in the very next verse, we see that Job then fell to the ground in worship. Naked I come from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Oh, I wonder how many of us can say that in our suffering. How many of us can say, God, even with this burden, even with this grief, even with this unemployment, even with this failing marriage, even with this diagnosis, even with these wayward kids, I can rant and rail, but you know what, God? I still believe you are a good And powerful God, and that through your Spirit you have intervened emphatically in my life. You have strengthened me. I can come to your throne of grace. I can receive mercy, and and it says, I can receive help in my time of need. That is our response. That is our response. It is our response to be real. We don't want to minimise pain. God does not want to minimise your pain. But don't don't stay there. Don't stay there is the message. Don't stay there. Run. Don't walk. Run to the throne of grace. Run to the throne of grace. Worship God. Have faith that he is good, that he is powerful and that he does intervene. You know, I just think that we may find within us through our suffering a deeper sensitivity to the human situation. And we may need to let our defences down and allow God to teach us in our pain. We allow us to question God in the way he runs this world. We're allowed to do that. But ultimately, we have nowhere else to go. And that was what God, Job discovered in the most devastating context that he had nowhere else to go. He just went to God in worship. How few of us find worship is our first reaction at the best of times. But here is a man who's coping with multiple bereavement. He's been afflicted with loss after loss. His sorrow is real and great. How difficult was it for him to worship At that time, yet worship was Job's reaction. He was so absorbed by his God in the giving and the taking away that there's a humble acceptance in blessing even the hand that struck him. Oh, that we could learn that our first response to calamity and pain in our life is to pray, is to worship, is to go to the the um, throne of grace. You know, we're told that if we have faith even as small as a mustard seed, we can move mountains. So I want to say to you today, from Job's experience, I haven't answered definitively for you why bad things happen to good people. I haven't, but I do know that the answer is incomplete because this world is incomplete. Someone said that uh, between Good Friday and Easter Sunday is Easter Saturday. And that in many ways this world is still in Easter Saturday. Even though we celebrate and we that have asked Jesus Christ into our lives have the risen Lord living within our lives. But the world is still in Easter Saturday. The world is yet to be fully redeemed. And so we live in a world that is still marred by pain and sickness And confusion about why things happen as they do. And someone once said that God is like a master weaver and that he takes each thread of what he is weaving, which is the events and actions that happen in our lives, and he weaves them into a pattern which affords the threads with significance, with certain significance. And... God only knows what those threads will end up looking like. Sometimes all we can see is the back of the tapestry and we see it with its knots and its stops and its starts and its unequal design. But God is on the other side and he is working a beautiful picture, a beautiful miracle and one day, The Bible tells us in Revelation 21, there will be no more weeping. It will be Easter Sunday forever and ever and ever. But until then, we live with the great tapestry maker in faith that he is threading the events of our lives and sometimes as ugly and as painful as they are into a beautiful pattern. So, I want to say to you today, in winding up, can you imagine what would happen in your family, or in your relationships, or in your church, or in your community if you were firstly a little more sensitive to the sufferings of others? Could you imagine if you? Would just trust God that little bit more, even though you don't really understand what He's doing, or even if you see that there's no sense to some of the suffering that might be occurring even in your own life or the lives of others. Could you imagine what would happen to your life if you left here today just trusting Him that little bit more because He truly has a design? for your life? Could you imagine if you gave God glory, even for the bad things in your life, and became a little bit more open to the refining learnings that these hard circumstances might wrought in your life, in your character, in your temperament? Could you imagine being totally free like a Bev Beach, from some of the things that bind us and keep us anchored and stuck in our mess or the things that we cling to like our wealth, like our possessions, which really might become a blockage to our total freedom in God. Could you imagine that if you were to do this, you might actually step more outside of yourself like Bev who wants to run a small group for others in her room? Could you imagine if every one of us left here knowing that God is a good and powerful God and really does intervene no matter what our life looks like and so therefore we're going to go out and we're going to let the world know Despite our circumstances, we have a great God that we need to bow down to. Can you imagine the pleasure of God? Can you imagine His delight? Can you imagine that He could truly say, You know, my servants, my children, they do love me unconditionally. It's not conditional. I have roamed the earth and I have found a dug. I have found a heather. I have found a dell. And my servants love me unconditionally despite what is going on in their lives. They know that through all their experiences... I can sustain them through it. I am a good and powerful God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that your word illuminates, yet not always emphatically answers for us questions that we all have, questions about hardship and life, about suffering, about pain, about our circumstances. But we know one thing, God, if we do truly love you, if we believe in you, if we have faith in you no matter what, we know that you can sustain us and you will sustain us through whatever we experience. And in the process, we might just... Lord, we pray, become a little more closer to you, a little more loving, a little more passionate about the things that you are passionate about. Oh, Lord, let it be that we could do this and that you could sustain us and comfort us as you intervene in our lives. In Jesus' precious name, amen.